a book about utter devastation, the unbelievably miraculous, and a mighty rescue. A book about a warrior god-king who fights to deliver his people out of brutal slavery. A book about an unexpected deliverer, born in one culture but raised in another. A book about the wanderings, failures, and ultimate formation of a people. A book that, more than any other in the Bible, seeks to answer the question, Who is the Lord? So, who is he? Who is this God? It's time to see for yourself. All right, before we get started, by show of hands, how many gold and whiters do we have in here? How many blue and blackers? How many, how many saw multiple? All right. Who knew a little dress could create such chaos? Undo the fabric of our world. All right, well, welcome, everyone. My name is Brett. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic Church. I have the honor and privilege of continuing our, week, our, uh, our series here with week seven of Exodus. As we've been going through this book, we've been seeking to answer the question, as the author of Exodus has sought to answer, who is the Lord? Now, Morgan's done an amazing job over the last six weeks of walking us through the first 31 chapters of this book. If you have not been here for any of those, I would highly encourage you to go check out the podcast. Uh, I Morgan, mean, I just want to honor you for your faithful obedience in studying the Word and bringing a good message to us week in and week out. Please go check that out on the podcast if you've missed any of them. Now, last week, Morgan talked about uh, Exodus 31, where God gives the law to Moses. He's handed down the Ten Commandments. He's telling the people, here's how you be my people. I have, I've called you my people, but here's how you love me back. I've lavished you with love. Obedience and response is lavishing me with love. And here's what that looks like. What we're going to look at today is while Moses was on top of the mountain receiving the commandments, what was going on at the bottom of the mountain in the hearts of the Israelites? My hope is what we'll see is what they were wrestling with is honestly what you and I wrestle with on a daily basis. And we'll dive into that today as we look at Exodus chapter 32. So if you would, pray with me real quick, and then we'll jump into our scripture. God, we thank you so much for just this opportunity to come and gather in your presence. or to sit under the authority of your word. God, we thank you just for the gift of life, the fact that our hearts are beating, that our lungs are breathing today. Lord, you've purposed all of that, that we might know you and give you praise. Lord, I pray that I would not waste a single breath this morning in teaching, that you would move through my words to penetrate our hearts, reveal to us your glory. God, you would give us ears that are sensitive and open to your voice. Lord, we would find joy and peace in your call to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus 32 is a pretty long passage, so y'all... Bear with me, you can follow along on the screens or in your Bible if you have it with you. Starting in verse 1 through 20 and then 30 to 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets and the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and the back they were written. They ta- the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, then please blot me out of your book, which you have written. Now, as you take a closer look at what's going on with the Israelites here, And how it also kind of accurately paints a picture and reveals to us much of what we wrestle with on a daily basis as well. I want to look at four pictures that this passage gives us. Number one, the heart of idolatry. Secondly, the sound of idolatry. Then the taste of idolatry. And then we'll look at the hope of our hearts. Let's start with the heart of idolatry. Now the Israelites' journey so far has, has has been quite an amazing one. I mean, they were slaves in Egypt, right? They had been beaten and misused, abused. They're Children were murdered, thrown into the Nile River, right? They, they've been slaving hard. They have forgotten who they are. They've lost their identity as the people of God. Yet out of nowhere, Moses shows up and he brings with him ten plagues or signs, as the Scripture calls them, that God sends to him to basically bear witness to the, the power, the surpassing worth and glory of the one true God in comparison to the false gods of Egypt. Right? They see the Passover come and the, the firstborn son of all who do not apply the blood to their doorpost dies. They walk out of Egypt. They come to the parting of the Red Sea where God literally splits the sea. They walk through on dry ground. They get to the other side and they, they witness God destroy the most powerful military force the world had ever known to that point in time. And they walk into the wilderness where they drink water from a rock and they eat bread that literally falls from heaven. And yet here we are 40 days after they have collectively proclaimed all that the Lord has said we will do, worshiping 
a handmade idol, a golden calf. Now, the question that immediately comes to my mind is this. What happened? Like, how, how could they so quickly forget all that God has done? Like, where's the faith? Where's the commitment? Like, how could they be honestly so foolish? Well, the answer is that they, like you and me, cannot see the deception that is taking place in their own hearts. And the reason they can't see it, and the reason you and I shouldn't be so quickly to point our fingers at them, is because of the heart of idolatry. Look at verse 6. It says, They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, that last part of the verse, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, gives us a glimpse into the heart of idolatry. And here's how. Up to this point, through all these miraculous signs, through all this deliverance, through the supernatural provision of God, what have the Israelites been doing? They've been grumbling and complaining about what? Everything. Like literally nothing that God has done has brought any kind of peace or joy to their hearts, despite the fact that it's beyond comprehension that it's happening. But they're grumbling and they're complaining. Why? Because the way God is doing what God is doing is not the way they want him to be doing it. In other words, this God, Yahweh, who has brought them out of the land of Egypt, isn't playing fair according to their rules. They don't like the fact that they have to trust in him for bread every day. They don't like the fact that, that they're not in the comforts of their homes in Egypt. And, and they've all, we've seen this whole series. It's how they continually look back at Egypt with this like wishful bliss. of Oh, we want to go back there. Why? Because God is not operating the way they want him to. In other words, God is not allowing them to be in control. And they begin grumbling and complaining about everything. In other words, the Israelites have been complaining because the God that delivered them is not predictable. And this lack of predictability in God has produced in the Israelites the kind of fear that comes when you and I feel like we don't have control of our lives as well. And yet here, having formed a lowercase g God out of their own hands, what do we see them doing? I mean, they're throwing a party. There's no grumbling or complaining here. They're, they're chilling, man. They're drinking wine, they're eating good food, and they're throwing a party. They're playing games. Now, why would they grumble and complain when God's delivering them and yet throw a party when they're worshiping something they know to be made by their own hands? Well, it's because they've become drunken in their idolatry. Now, I'm not a drinker. I have nothing against drinking. I just have never had a desire to drink alcohol. But I remember when I was in high school and in, in middle school, uh, middle, high school and college, sorry, not middle school, Although, actually, there was some in middle school. That's mostly in high school and college. When I'd be out with my friends, or be at parties, or be downtown Athens when I was at the University of Georgia, and I would never drink. I'd always have my glass of water, and all my buddies would have their alcoholic beverages, and I was usually driving them home. And, but inevitably, people would come up to me all the time, and they would say, man, that is so awesome that you don't drink. Man, I have so much respect for you that you don't, you don't have to drink like everybody else does. Man, I wish I never started drinking. I wish I didn't have to drink. Of course, my response to that would be the obvious question, then why don't you put down the cup and stop drinking? To which I would always get some kind of response that would go like this. Oh, no, I can't do that. See, drinking helps loosen me up. It helps remove my inhibitions. When I, when I drink, I don't... I don't worry so much about what other people are thinking about me. When I drink, I can kind of let loose and forget about my fears and, and the worries of life, and I can just kind of be me. What are they saying? 
They're saying alcohol helps to mask the fear that resides in my heart. Saying when I, when I have alcohol in my system, I can live as if life were pitch perfect, even though I know it really isn't. The alcohol saves them from the fear of not being in control of other people's perceptions or opinions. I mean, I can just not worry about life when I've got alcohol in my system. And honestly, that's the way many of us treat our idolatry. And it's the way the Israelites were treating their idolatry. Of course, we all know how those evenings tend to end, not with a pitch-perfect life, but with your arms wrapped around the porcelain throne, worshiping the gods of Vom and It, waiting for them to deliver you from the hell that you currently find yourself in. We call that a hangover, right? And inevitably, the, day, the, the morning after is never better than the night before. It actually leaves you not only with the same problems you once had, but now new problems that you have to deal with. See, the reality is this, most of the grumbling and the partying are coming from the same place in our hearts. It's a desire to control because of the fear that we experience. See, Moses has been up on that mountain for 40 days. Now, the Israelites have gotten anxious, they're afraid, they're, they're stressing out. Why? Because they don't know what's happened to Moses or God. They're thinking, okay, even through all the grumbling and complaining, they still are aware of the fact that it was This man Moses and this God Yahweh who brought them out of Egypt, who have sustained them through the wilderness. But now 40 days have gone by. They haven't heard from God. They haven't heard from Moses. And they start thinking, man, where are we going to get food? Who's going to protect us? What if another surrounding country, nation comes after us right here? We're vulnerable. What are we going to do? We don't know. We're afraid. We're fearful. We're stressed. We're anxious. See, even though they've grumbled and complained, they know ultimately where their security lies and now they stand at the bottom of the mountain not knowing what the next move is have god and moses left them and they're afraid because they don't have answers they don't feel like they're in control of their current situation now why because the same lie that kept them grumbling and complaining in the wilderness has once again entered their hearts it's the same lie that uh, adam and eve bought into It's the same lie you and I buy into on a way too often basis. That lie is this. Can I really trust God? Is God really for me? Does he really want what's best for me? Does he really love me? I don't don't know that he does. So I should probably just grasp for control and become like God rather than submitting and trusting my life to God. And oh, that lie feels so true. It feels true in our circumstances. Life isn't going the way we want it to go. And we don't know where our provision is going to come from. We don't know what the future holds. Man, it feels so true to us to say, man, I just got to take control of things here. Kind of like seeing a white and gold dress. When the dress in reality is really black and blue. It is. It is. Use Photoshop with the the color tester. It's blue and black. But those of you who saw white and gold, you swear the dress is white and gold. And if someone comes in, like my wife said, come here, tell me what color this dress is. And I was like, why should I? It's blue and black. She goes, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) Right? Why? She's like, are you playing a joke on me right now? Like, no, this dress is black and blue. What are you talking about? (laughs) But you're convinced. Yeah, that's the way deception 
works. And when the lie of the enemy comes in and says, oh, look at your circumstances, look at your pain, look at your suffering, look at your relationships, look at your life, it's falling apart. God doesn't want you. God doesn't love you. You can't trust God. It's like white and gold, white and gold, white and gold. So you're laughing, but the point is, listen, your heart can be so deceived that you swear you cannot trust God. And all the while, God's going, I'm the most trustworthy being. Like, look into reality. But sadly enough, we buy into our deceptions much more than we do our reality oftentimes. See, our hearts are way too easily deceived. And when that lie takes root in us, it produces the kind of fear that leads to idolatry. I'm unemployed. Is God going to provide for me and my family? I'm single. Is God ever going to bring me a spouse? I mean, marriage is hard. Is God ever going to change my spouse? I'm in pain. Is God ever going to bring me comfort? And when we doubt, we forget about all the amazing things that God has already done and proven to us in his trustworthiness. We get drunk on our idols. And here's what's really scary. Those idols usually aren't bad things. Actually, they're most often good things that God has blessed us with. I mean, look at the object of the Israelites' idolatry. What is it? It's a golden calf. Where did the gold come from? From their jewelry. Now, where did a bunch of slaves get all this gold jewelry? Well, back in chapter 12, God says, Hey, Moses, tell the Israelites, while y'all are marching out of Egypt, once I deliver you, to just stop at all the Egyptians' houses and say, Hey, can we have your gold and silver while we're leaving? And the Egyptians go along with this. Like, this is maddening. How often do you think someone is going to say, oh, there go the people who have single-handedly destroyed our society, our culture, and killed our children. Hey, before you go, why don't you take all my money as well? That doesn't happen. No, no, no. This is God doing this. This is God saying, I'm going to provide for your needs, for where I'm taking you, what you're going to embark on, what you're going to come up against. I'm providing for you today for when you get there tomorrow. And what do the Israelites do with this amazing gift that God has given them? They worship it. And this is what fear does in our hearts as well. See, whatever you fear will dictate what you worship. See, if you fear poverty, then you will worship money. Something God has intended to be your provision, to point you you to Him as your provider. Fear skews your perception of that, and you begin to say things like, man, no, I, I, need, I need more so I can predict my future, so I can feel safe. If you fear loneliness, you begin to worship relationships, something God's intended to reveal his nature to you. Fear skews that, and you begin saying things like, well, if I'm loved by someone, then that makes me lovable. That makes me valuable. That, that makes me significant. So whatever that functional Savior is that you feel will save you from that functional hell, When it's mixed with fear, it becomes your God. You'll begin to take what God intended to point you to his glory and to turn it into an object of your own worship. Here's the problem. Those idols promise to take away your fear and your anxiety and your pain. They give us control over our circumstances. But instead, they deliver an idolatrous hangover that leaves us caught up in point number two, the sound of idolatry. As we look at verses 17 and 18, he said, When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. 
But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. See, Joshua hears this noise of partying going on at the bottom of the mountain. He says, Moses, man, it sounds like war is waging. There's a battle going on. We need to get down there. Moses says, no, no, Joshua, that's not war. That's the drunkenness of idolatry. And this is where we begin to turn the tide on the idolatry of our own hearts. Because we have to begin to understand this reality. What feels like a party is actually a war. It's because you tend to live with a greater intentionality in wartime than you do in peacetime, don't you? I mean, just look at airport travel pre-9-11 versus post-9-11. Right before, you can pretty much just walk right in. You even need an ID. Now you've got to practically disrobe in front of folks just to get to your plane. Or maybe a better example is this, the, the RMS Queen Mary. Now, the Queen Mary was the biggest, fastest, most luxurious cruise liner in the late 1930s. Considered by the upper class of that day to be the only civilized way to travel. Right, she carried passengers like Greta Garbo, Clark Gable, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. But, 1939, when World War II broke out, travel, luxury travel, ceased altogether. The ship was transformed into a troop ship, transporting soldiers. Became known as the Grey Ghost. Now, during this time, her capacity was increased from 2,400 passengers to 5,500. By the end of the World War II, the ship had carried more than 800,000 troops and played a significant role in virtually every major Allied campaign. Now, you can see the vast difference between the cruise liner and the warship. So the cruise liner is filled with all the comforts and conveniences of that day and age. It was a luxurious and lavish experience designed to make you feel important, honestly, to make you feel like a god. But the point of the warship was to win the battle, to overcome the enemy. See, all the luxury and comforts were stripped to make room so that it could carry as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, so to avoid getting sunk by torpedoes from enemy submarines. Now, I guarantee as those troops stand on that balcony and those, the, the, the deck up there, they're not sipping $100 glasses of champagne and ordering pate. No, they're focused. There's a task at hand. Why? Because they know they're in wartime, not peacetime. And this is what Joshua and Moses are pointing out to us. The fact that idolatry is a war that wages in our hearts, but that the drunkenness of, di- of idolatry has led us to believe that we're actually on a cruise ship rather than a war vessel. So you look at the idols in your own heart, or at least the things that are tempting you to make them idols. Right? The way people perceive you, the house you live in or the car you drive, your relationships, sex, pornography, the number of dollar signs in your bank account. Drugs or alcohol that you use to escape your issues. So our hearts want to justify those things. We want to say, yeah, so I work longer hours than I ought to. Man, I'm just providing for my family. Or, so yeah, I've had a few too many drinks. Man, I'm just having a good time with my friends. Or, yeah, we're sleeping together, but, I mean, he really loves me, and we're going to get married someday. What are we doing? We're living as if we're in peacetime and not wartime. We're allowing the deception to cover the motivation of our hearts and the reality that there's actually an enemy threatening to destroy our lives. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, if we want to confront the idolatry in our own hearts, We've got to intentionally examine the real desires behind the choices we make. 
we must confront those fears, that accusation against God in our hearts with a brutal honesty. Let me just be blunt for a second. And there are people here this morning who have bought into the lie that you can't really trust God, that he's not really for you. And you're spending hours on the cruise ship of entertainment and social media while your Bible collects dust on the shelf. C.S. Lewis once said, we are far too easily amused. It's because we've been duped into thinking that we're living in peacetime, not realizing we should actually be preparing for battle. Look at me. I'm not just talking to non-Christians today. Many of you who claim the name of Jesus have allowed that lie to take root in your heart. We've got to get serious about seeking God in truth and righteousness through his word. Until we're able to recognize that we're in this battle, then you and I are going to continue towards point number three, the taste of idolatry. Verses 9 through 10, it says, The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Then Moses pleads with God, he says, Lord, don't destroy your people. Let, because if you do that, the, the Egyptians and the surrounding nations are, are going to think you're an evil God. They're going to think that you've just brought us out here to destroy us. So for the sake of your name, not because these people deserve it, but for the sake of your name, would you be merciful? Would you be gracious? Would you not destroy them? He goes on in verse 19 to 20. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it with powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Now, here's something very interesting going on in this passage. So the phrase used to describe God's wrath burning hot is the exact same phrase used to describe Moses' anger burning hot when he comes down the mountain. So what was happening? God was angry with his people. Moses says, no, God, relent from destroying them. Don't destroy them. Be gracious. Be merciful. Then Moses goes down the mountain carrying the same anger. What's happening? Moses comes down the mountain carrying the wrath of God and pours out his own judgment on the Israelites. And what was that judgment? Well, he burns the golden calf, grinds it up to powder, mixes it with water, and tells the people to drink it. Now, the gold must have been mixed with other substances because pure gold, if you heat it up, it just turns to liquid. But here we see it's burned, it's ground down, into a powder, pour it on water, and they drink it. Now, here's what's really interesting and really cool. When you combine heat and water with nanoparticles of gold, you get a mixture known as colloidal gold. And when you do that, it turns the water actually a very dark red color. Okay, we've got a picture of it here. One of those, that's the spectrum. So that's the color liquid the Israelites would have been drinking. By making, by Moses making them swallow this blood-colored liquid, he's showing them and us three things about our idols. Number one, that what they were worshiping was a God that can be consumed and is therefore neither eternal nor powerful. Number two, after swallowing this liquid, the gold would have passed through their system and become excrement, which is exactly what idolatry is in the eyes of God. That's why Paul in Philippians 3 says, hey, whatever I've gained, whatever accolades, whatever I've achieved in my old life, I consider it what? A pile of dung compared to knowing Christ. And number three, this liquid would have been incredibly bitter to the taste, which is exactly what every idol produces in our hearts 
It promises sweetness, but it delivers bitterness instead. Now why? Because created things were never intended to carry the weight of your worship. They're meant to be actually be God's gifts to us that point to his goodness and his glory in our lives instead. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he put it this way. He said, the books or the music, in other words, the created things, in which we thought the beauty was located, will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. In other words, the pleasure and the security and the comfort and the joy that these created things bring to us was never actually meant to terminate on those things, but to actually be a vehicle through which we're carried into the knowledge of the greater joy, the greater goodness, the greater pleasure, the greater satisfaction that we have in Christ alone. But when we look to those things, those created things, for simply what they provide, they become idols and objects of our worship. Let me give you an example. When, I, when I'm at home and we're eating a meal, oftentimes when I'm praying for our meal at dinner, I'll pray something like this. I'll say, Lord, we thank you for the amazing, delicious flavors that we're about to experience. And I'm looking forward to it. God, my prayer is that as good as this food tastes, that those flavors would simply remind us that there's a better taste awaiting us, that there's a greater pleasure awaiting us, that what we're experiencing here and now in the flavor of this food is simply a substitute for what is going to await us one day in your presence. See, that's... The pleasure of creation pointing us to the glory of creator. But if we don't allow it to carry us there, then we will begin to find our hope, our joy, and our satisfaction in the created things, when in reality they're meant to point us to a place we have yet to visit. If we're chasing after those things in creation rather than creator, we're forming idols in our hearts. And the taste of idolatry is bitter to our souls because created things are never meant to provide us with the ultimate satisfaction that we all long for. No, to find that, we have to look at point number four, the hope of our hearts. So the next day, Moses says to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive them of their sin, but if not, then please blot me out of your book, which you have written. See, Moses says the answer to idolatry is not to try harder at being good. The answer is atonement. Atonement literally means to cover over, to make amends, to put things right again. And look how Moses does this. He doesn't just go to God to represent the Israelites as a defense attorney would represent a client before a judge. No, he goes and identifies himself with the Israelites. You see what he says. He tells God, this people has sinned a great sin. Be merciful to them. But if you want, if you're not going to be merciful to them, then treat me the way you treat them. He's identifying with the people. This act of intercession and identification moves the heart of God to show mercy to the people. 
But we know from other books in the Old Testament, what happens to the Israelites? They return to their idolatry over and over and over and over and over. Now, why? Because to really deal with our idolatry, our hearts have to be put right again, as God intended them to be. You can't just remove the bitterness of idolatry through the consequences of sin. There has to be a transformation that takes place. You can't just feel really bad about what you've done. You have to long for something better. Not simply by removing our idols, but by dispossessing them. Timothy Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says it like this. Idols cannot simply be removed. They must be replaced. If you only try to uproot them, they will grow back. But they can be supplanted. By what? By God himself, of course. But by God, we do not mean a general belief in his existence. Most people have that, and yet their souls are riddled with idols. What we need is a living encounter with God. See, here's the deal. If our idolatry is rooted in in fear, in, in our lack of trust towards God, then to undo the idolatry, to, to uproot and supplant and dis, dispossess the idolatry, we've got to replace it with something else. But what? Well, the only thing in this universe that's strong enough and powerful enough to replace fear is love. See, First John chapter 4, verse 16 and 18, John writes this. He says, We know how much God loves us. And we have put our trust in his love. For God is love. And all who live in love live in God. And God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. We can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we do not fu- have not fully experienced his perfect love. See, the only thing powerful enough to conquer the fear in our hearts is the perfect, unconditional love of our Heavenly Father. But how do we know that God has loved us this way? Like, how do we know that God is trustworthy like his word tells us he is? Well, because centuries later, after the incident of the golden calf, a greater Moses would come. Jesus the Christ, didn't just carry God's wrath down the mountain, he absorbed God's wrath on the mountain. He didn't just make us to drink the bitter water of our idolatry, but on the night of his betrayal, he took a cup and he lifted it up and he said, take, drink, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the remission of your sins. And what was in that cup? Oh, sweet wine. When he hung on the cross, what was he given to drink? Bitter water. See, Jesus swallowed the bitterness of our idolatry. So we could taste the sweetness of his salvation. And when he, Jesus swallowed that down, he purchased us. He transformed us when we trust in him. Now it's possible because Jesus didn't just identify with us, he substituted himself for us. For God made him to be our sin so that we could become his righteousness. In other words, Jesus was rejected because of our idolatry so that we could be accepted on behalf of his faithful obedience. See, ultimately, our fear and our lack of trust in God really resides in the reality that we all know we've given ourselves to idols. We worship created things rather than creator. And inwardly, we all know that we're deserving of God's wrath for that. And that brings fear. 
brings a lack of trust, man. Am I being punished for my sin? Is God really not for me? When you look to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, the most perfect, most beautiful, most amazing being in the entire universe loves you so much he thinks you're worth dying for. Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish pastor in the 19th century, a sermon he preached one time called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He said this, he said, The heart is so constituted that the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is through the expulsive power of a new one. So let me ask you this, both Christian and non-Christian here today, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to allow the love that God has lavished upon you in Christ to dispossess the fear and the mistrust? Or are you still allowing your own insecurities and pride to lead you down a path of idolatry? Trying to build your life around little gods that are really nothing more than a bitter drink that you'll drink and pass. What are those areas in your life where you find yourself fearful, anxious, stressed, What little gods have you forged in your own heart in the attempt to control your circumstances? Let me just tell you something you probably already know. Those little gods will fail you. They will leave you with a hangover of idolatry. Thanking you've accomplished something. Thanking that they're going to bring something to your heart and your soul only to grasp for air and realize you're holding nothing in reality. Let me plead with your heart, and honestly with my own heart today. And this is as much a struggle for me as it is anybody in this room. And I can tell you how tempting it is to to make my wife my God. To make my children my God. To make my finances my God. To make my comfort and my pleasure my God. To make my son's eight-year-old basketball team actually winning a game this season my God. I'm telling you, I, I come home from our games, and I'm down, and I'm depressed. You know why? No, don't laugh. I'm serious. I told my, my wife, what's wrong with you? I said, Man, I feel like I'm letting those parents down. What am I doing? Their opinion has become my God. I'll be happy and have joy when we win a game because then they'll like me. We could win every game in the season. In the next season, I'm going to have the same fear. You know Why? Because created things were never meant to carry the hope and dreams of my eternity. Let me plead with you today, with myself today. Look to Jesus, the hope of your heart, and taste the sweetness of God's grace for you today. Not in some ethereal, far-off place that we call heaven today. Listen, if you're here today, I'm just going to ask us to be honest. The band's going to come up, and they're going to, they're going to play a song for us here in a minute. But With your eyes open and your heads raised, if you would be honest with yourself today, and you would say, yeah, Brett, man, I, I see it. Man, I, I haven't trusted God in this area of my life, and I've allowed fear to take root in my heart as if God is not for me, and I've begun putting my hope in my dreams and my joy and my satisfaction in created things rather than creator God. If you know there's something in your life that fits that description, just raise your hand right now. I'm raising both. 
Listen, y'all, this is where freedom lies. This is where freedom lies. It's in being honest with who we are and what we're struggling with, not slapping some religious label on it and going, oh, man, praise God, everything's all good. It's saying, no, here is I, here's me. This is me. I struggle with this. And God, I don't want to. I want you to set me free. Deliver me from these false idols that fail me day in and day out. The good news, as Nathan said earlier, man, it's done. It's finished. When Jesus hung on the cross, you know what he, you know what he said was finished? Our atonement, the covering over of our idolatry, the making things right again, the putting your heart back the way God intended it to be so that you might long for him and desire him and enjoy him and celebrate him as he intended you to do so. So that's yours today. That's mine today. I don't have to hope in these false gods and these little idols. I've got a greater hope that supersedes. It's a hope of my heart. It's guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to sing that song, Scandal of Grace again. The chorus says, Oh, to be like you. Give all I have to know you. Right, Jesus, the hope of our hearts. After I pray and I say amen, we're going to stand on our feet and we're going to sing this song from a place inside of us, I hope. That's not just, oh, it's a good song. It's got a nice tune. It's not just a, hey, we're here on Sunday morning and this is what we do. But from a place inside of us that says, I am sick and tired of being failed by my golden calves. I want the true experience, the taste and see that the Lord is good. God, set me free. God, deliver me from my fears and my anxieties that I might know, oh, that I might know the goodness of your love. We're going to sing from that place. And I want it to be loud. And I want it to be exciting. And I want to shake the heavens. And I want God to look down on us and say, that's my people. Father, we thank you today. Every hand that was raised in here, God, we come to confess, oh God, our need for you. Uh, we, we just, we acknowledge that we've allowed fear. We've allowed mistrust towards you to enter our hearts, God. When, when, when life hasn't gone the way we want it to go, Lord, we've grasped for control. Lord, we've tried to take control of our circumstances. We've tried to, tried to force your hand in our lives to give us what we think we need. Oh, but God, we thank you. You are such a good and loving Father, sovereign in all your ways, and you know best what we actually need. Lord, we're praying, would you remove the deception of our hearts? God, would you uproot and displace the fear, the anxiety, the lack of trust towards you? Would you bring us to a place where we fall on our knees and we long for more and more and more and more of who you are? Lord, nothing in this world will ever satisfy us. We thank you for the good gifts you've given us. Lord, guard our hearts against making those things gods. Against our spouse, our children, our finances, sex, money, whatever. Lord, help us to see these things rightly as signposts pointing us to the ultimate good that we have in you. And God, we now, we celebrate. We celebrate. Just stand on your feet. We celebrate this morning that there is a true God in our lives. There is one who will not fail us. There is one who will not leave us nor forsake us. For you have engraved us on the palm of your hands. And it is to that end we come together now to sing songs of praise.
and worship. Oh, to be like you. Well, we will give all we have to know you because you are the hope of our hearts. In Jesus' name.